Father, thank you for today. Thank you for Sabbath and rest and worship and the blessings of gathering with these good people. I pray for your spirit now. In Jesus' name, amen. So on April 4 of 1968, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee at the Lorraine Hotel. You probably remember that from history. What's interesting, though, is prior to that, the, the evening before, he gave a speech, um, and it was, in, it was titled, I've Been to the Mountaintop. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play a little bit of an excerpt from that speech because I want you to hear the tone and the language that he uses and just the, the moment that it was, the night before, literally, the night before he was killed uh, the, next, the next day uh, there in Memphis, Tennessee. And just listen to his language and listen to uh, perhaps if you can detect a little bit of his, his understanding of what it means to, to die and to deal with the reality of death. And what he didn't know is how imminent his death was, but as you listen to his words, you almost think that he kind of knows that something may happen to him. So here's, here's the clip. America is be true to what you said on paper. If I lived in China or even Russia or any totalitarian country, maybe I could understand some of these illegal injunctions. Maybe I could understand the denial of certain basic First Amendment privileges because they haven't committed themselves to that over there. But somewhere I read of the freedom of assembly. Somewhere I read of the freedom of speech. Somewhere I read of the freedom of press. Somewhere I read that the greatness of America is the right to protest far right. So just as I say we aren't going to let any dogs or water hoses turn us around, we aren't going to let any injunction turn us around. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know the night that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. So, and at 38 years old, 
the next day, Martin Luther King Jr. would be assassinated. 38 years old. But did you hear the language? Did you hear his tone? Did you hear how he was coming, what, what he was saying as he was speaking there? I may not get there with you. It's almost as if he had really come to terms, he had really come to grips with the reality of the fact that he was, um, that death could potentially be imminent from him, for him. And he said, it, it, you know, it really doesn't matter. Um, um, he, he said there at the end, he said, mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. And he, would, he seemed to be, he seemed to project to me at least a sense of, I'm okay with it. I'm all right. This, this, his perspective was that, yeah, I, this is reality. This is, this is life. And, and the truth about life is that there is death. And, and my death at 38 years old, that's actually very disturbing to me. I don't know that I've ever spent the time to think about at what age Dr. Martin Luther King was when he was assassinated. 38 years old. So go, let's go to the New Testament now with Paul. And I want you to hear another perspective from um, someone who wrote a good portion of the New Testament, and that's the Apostle Paul. And uh, you'll find that in Philippians chapter 1, verses 18 to 21. Um, and I want you to listen for similarities between what Dr. King says and what Paul says in their perspective on death and the potential for resurrection and life beyond the grave, all right? And um, so here's the context for Paul. Paul is in prison. He's under house arrest in Rome. Death is potentially imminent for him too. He is facing uh, a trial and possible execution, and he's under a crazy uh, emperor, and it's very likely that he could be cut down as well. Here are Paul's words from Philippians um, chapter 1, verses 18 to 21, and listen to these words. It says this, but what does it matter? Sound very similar to Dr. King, but what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice, even in the midst of potential death. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and, the, and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me, he's in prison, will turn out for my deliverance. Listen to this, verse 20. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. And then he says in verse 21, this is the, this is the kicker right here. He says, for, me to, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Wow. And ultimately, we know that Paul would, would suffer and he would die for his faith. But it's these words right here that make you, that help us to sort of see what his perspective was and what the Bible's perspective is and what every believer's perspective is and what every Seventh-day Adventist Christian's perspective should be about the reality of death and ultimately the reality and the truth about resurrection. That though we may die, and though this time in this life may be cut short, it may be 38, it may be younger, it may be older, but as a believer operating from the perspective of what Scripture gives us, we understand that this life is this life, and God bless us for the years that He gives us, but should it be that we not live very long, or if we live very long at the end of the day, we know that there's something else. We know that there's something more. 
But in, in, in the meantime, we're going to live for God. To live as Christ, to die is gain. How can he have such a perspective to, to think that to die is gain? Come on. Everyone, I mean, in our culture, in our world today, if you die, that's it. I mean, that's... There's grieving, there's heartache, there's sorrow, there's so much that we miss out on. But in the mind of Paul and obviously potentially in the mind of Martin Luther King Jr., they saw that there was something more and something greater even beyond the grave. That this life wasn't the only thing that mattered. Powerful stuff. Paul would go on in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 55. Paul would, Paul would say this, um, and it, again, it gives us a little insight into his perspective and his attitude about death. In 1 Corinthians 15, 55, he says this, where, O oh, death, is your victory? He says, where, O oh, death, is your sting? I mean, that's got to take a pretty bold dude to mock death. I'm going to go ahead and get in your face, death, and tell you, you got no power over me. What a perspective. What deep conviction it is to have, to have very little regard for this life. That doesn't mean you're reckless. It doesn't mean that you're looking, you have a death wish. But it means I have very little regard for this life because I know that there is a life to come that is far greater. Wow. What would give them that perspective? What would have them understand death and resurrection in this way? We'll get there. But um, I want to put up on the board the actual SDA fundamental belief number 26. So it's all official. You're going to get to read it. And we won't, we won't be able to dissect everything in it. But you, we will get to read it together. You can see it up there. And uh, just follow along with me. So this is SDA belief number 26, death and resurrection. It goes like this. This is the Adventist perspective on death. The wages of sin is death. But God, who alone is immortal, that's pretty key, will grant eternal life to his redeemed. That's a great promise. Until that day, death is an unconscious state for all people. When Christ, who is our life, appears, the resurrected righteous and the living righteous will be glorified and caught up to meet their Lord. The second resurrection, the resurrection of the unrighteous, will take place a thousand years later. Right, so that's sort of the whole teaching, that's the whole belief in a nutshell. We'll try to pull some things out of there. I won't be able to get to everything, but we'll try to do the best that we can. So the best reference point, or the best reference we can go to, I believe, would be to see what Jesus' perspective is on death and resurrection. And we'll find that. And here, by the way, let me, let me interject here. Here's the thing with our whole series. We have these frames, as you can see, we're called frames. And ultimately, what we want to do is make sure that as we study Scripture and as we understand these fundamental core beliefs of the Adventist church, that there's a picture that emerges in each one of these frames. And that picture and that image is of Jesus and the gospel. We are praying, we're trusting, we're believing that if I do my job right, Pastor Jeff does his job right in first and third, at the end of our series, you will have, the spotlight will be on Jesus and the gospel and the character of God and, and who, the character of Jesus and who he is and what he was all about. If in fact, if in fact we teach a doctrine and it does not, and it does not bring you clarity about Jesus and who he is and what he does, we have failed you miserably. All right? So, 
we're going to go to Jesus. We're going to look at his perspective on death and resurrection. You go to John chapter 11. Now, you remember a guy in the Bible by the name of Lazarus. Lazarus was a friend of Jesus. Mary and Martha were sisters, and Jesus and the whole family were friends. And Jesus would spend the night and eat their food, and he was just a regular companion and friend to this family. Well, Lazarus became sick and died. And as you might imagine, that was a very uh, difficult thing, especially for his sisters to handle. And they would, they would grieve, and they would, they would weep, and they would mourn, but they also knew that Jesus was their friend, and, and they believed that if Jesus had just been there, uh, Lazarus could have been saved. What they failed to understand is that Jesus also has a handle on things, even in the midst of death. And so let's go there, and uh, we'll get a little bit of an idea of what Jesus' um, perspective is on death and resurrection. John 11, verses 11 through 15 Verse 11, it says, after he had said this, he went on to tell them. Jesus is talking to his disciples before he goes to see Lazarus in the tomb. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death. So right there off the bat, you can see real quick what Jesus thinks or what, how Jesus understands what death is. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. When I'm talking about Lazarus being asleep, he's, in, he's actually dead, guys. Pay attention. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Verse 15, and for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Key, key principle that... that Jesus helps us to understand about death. And it's one significant thing that Adventism has taught for years and years and years. And that is, death is simply an unconscious state that you are asleep. When you go into that box or when you're ashes, when you are ashes, you are asleep. That is it. There's no separate spirit or soul that separates from your body and goes off to heaven or to hell. There's just you unconscious, asleep, and that is what death is, and that's how Jesus described it. He wasn't just using some euphemism to describe death. He was talking about actual death as a, as a sleep, as a sleep. That was Jesus' perspective, which in many ways is kind of a, a very good perspective, wouldn't you say? That death is just sort of this rest. Now, I know y'all like sleep. Who likes sleep? Okay, who's sleeping right now? No, <laughs> don't answer that. Don't answer that. I'm going to pray for you. All right. But sleep, there's nothing like sleep. It's good for your health. It's good for your soul. When you don't sleep well, you become this terrible, rude person. Right? You do. Just ask your family when you haven't gotten any sleep, right? So what a beautiful imagery, what a beautiful picture that Jesus paints is that death is a sleep and we go to a rest and we're not tortured and we're not in pain. We're just at peace. We're at rest and we, we sleep. Beautiful picture that Jesus paints. Jesus' perspective on death is that it is a sleep. Jesus continues, 
In the same context, in the same story with Lazarus, he goes down to verse 25, John 11, verses 25 and 26. And listen to this. Listen to how else Jesus talks about this notion of death. He says this, I am the resurrection and the life. Isn't that awesome? Jesus comes along, he, he comes along and he, he steps into a situation where people are kind of looking at him going, dude, dude, hey, you've done all these miracles. If you had been here, you could have taken care of this sickness. And Jesus says, oh, no, 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 don't, don't, I, I do death too. <laughs> I don't just do sick, I do dead. So here you go. So, so he, he's talking about, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though he, even though they die. Wow. Even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Wow. Part of Jesus' perspective on this notion of death and resurrection is, is this idea of a promise. That if you believe in him, he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, you're never going to die. Wow, wait, wait a second. Jesus, there are lots of people who believe in you, and they ain't here, right? What the Bible teaches and what we believe as Seventh-day Adventists is that there are actually two deaths and two, de two resurrections. The first death is a death that maybe all of us will suffer, and that is the natural death. That is the sleep that some of us may have to experience. Dr. King, at age 38, who knows what age we will be? That is the first death. Now, unfortunately, what we don't want to experience is what is called the second death. And that is when there is, a, um, there is a, a judgment and then there is a final destruction of those who, are, uh, who choose not to follow Jesus, who choose not to place their faith in Christ. That is the second death. Then you, will, you are not coming back from the second death. You're not coming back from the second death. We also teach that there are two resurrections. I like to refer to them as wake-up calls. There are two wake-up calls. There's one wake-up call when Jesus returns. Jesus comes back, and there will be some of us who won't have to suffer that first death because there will be some of us who will be alive when Jesus comes. But there will be those who are dead. And when Jesus comes back, there's a wake-up call for those who were his followers, his believers, and he's going to bring them back. That's the first wake-up call. Those who are righteous, those who are Christ followers, those who are believers. They've suffered the first death, perhaps, or, or perhaps not. And those of us who are alive, who are faithful followers of Jesus, will get caught up with those who have been dead. So you got that, 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 that first resurrection, that first wake-up call. Now, again, there's a second resurrection. There's a period there after that first resurrection of what we call a thousand years, the millennium, where God's people... God's faithful followers go to heaven and they spend a thousand years there. Those who are dead and unrighteous and not followers of Christ, they haven't placed their faith in him, remain in the grave. Which again is quite a beautiful promise is that even those who did not, did not choose to follow Jesus do not suffer in the, in the time when, when Jesus has taken those who are righteous. God does not exact some sort of cruel punishment upon them just because they are not his followers. But at the end of that thousand years, there is a judgment that will take place. That is when everybody has made their decision, and that's where those who have chosen not to follow Jesus will ultimately suffer the second death, which you do not come back from. First, there's, a one, there's two resurrections, first resurrection, second resurrection. There's a 
first death and the second death. You don't want to be a part of any of the second acts. You don't want to be a part of the second resurrection. You don't want to be a part of the second death. So Jesus says, believe me. Trust me. Place your faith in me. I am the resurrection and I am the life. That's who I am. And if you place your faith and your trust in me, you'll have this incredible perspective on, on, on death and resurrection. And you'll understand that, that though there is death and suffering and all kinds of fearfulness that we suffer in this life, that there is more to come, that there is life after this, that there is a promise that I will make to you, that I've overcome death. All right, one last little piece here that I want you to hear is John chapter 11, verses 35 and 36. So here you go. Um, I'm gonna, this is a takeaway for you. You will know a memory verse when you leave it. How many of you have ever memorized a memory verse before? Memorized a memory verse? Yeah, you have. All right, so I'm going to teach you another one this morning. And you're going you're gonna, to, so if you've never memorized one, you will leave this morning having memorized a memory verse, all right? So a Bible text. You will know a Bible text when you leave this morning. John 11, verse 35, and verse 36. We're going to memorize verse 35, all right? Just two words. Jesus wept. <laughs> there you go. You got it. <laughs> verse 36. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. So again, in the same context of the same story, Lazarus' sister comes to Jesus and, um, and takes him over to the tomb. Takes Jesus over to where Lazarus is buried and, and the Bible says that Jesus wept. Your memory verse. That tells you something about, again, about Jesus' perspective on death and resurrection. That Jesus himself, the one who called himself the resurrection and the life, would weep. That tell you something about how God identifies with our own pain and brokenness. It doesn't say that Jesus sort of, you know, he just sort of jots up to the place, I'm the resurrection and the life. Everything's going to be good because I'm here, right? And I think Jesus does that in order to identify with you and me because we know the sting of death. You know the grief that you feel when you lose somebody that you care about. It's the same grief that this little Alexis, this young teenager, is, is having to suffer through right now because she's, she was there when it happened. And Jesus identifies with our pain. He identifies with our suffering. He doesn't dismiss our suffering. He doesn't say, oh, just get over it because I'm coming back. I'm going to take care of everything. Jesus is the ultimate minister. He knows, he knows how to be present with people in the, in the process of their grief and their suffering. And he doesn't dismiss it. He doesn't ignore it. He's just there. Jesus doesn't even say anything. He's just there. The one who called himself the resurrection and life, the one who holds the power of life and death in his very hands, just shows up and he's present. That same Jesus is there for you in the midst of your pain and your grief and your loss. You know what else Jesus can handle? He can handle your anger. Because we get mad. I mean, it just doesn't seem right that a 38-year-old man doing great things in this world, changing the culture, fighting against sin and evil in a, in a segregated culture, segregated world that was, that, was, that was gripped by the evil of racism, 
should be cut down at the age of 38. I'm kind of mad about that right now. So it says, it doesn't, the English version doesn't capture it very good here, but these passages here where it says that, um, uh, it talks about how Jesus loved Lazarus in this whole section where Jesus is standing there at the tomb and he doesn't say anything, but the original language says that he quaked with anger. Wow. Jesus quaked with anger standing in front of the tomb of his friend that he loved. Jesus grieved. The one who is the very epitome of life and resurrection grieved. I think he did that for us. I think he did that because he knows that we're gonna get angry. We'll get angry when there's loss and when there's when there's death and when there's pain and there's sorrow. We get angry. And it says that Jesus quaked with anger. I'm glad he got angry. I'm glad he got ticked off. You know, you know why else he got mad? Because he knows death is just this pesky, little, this pesky little thing. It's like those silly little gnats that buzz around your head every now and then, right? You know, the stupid bugs in Florida. It's just pesky. It's, a, it's an unwelcome invader. It's an unwelcome intruder because Jesus, this was never part of the plan. This whole death thing, this whole, this whole sin and death that brings about death, that was never part of the plan. And Jesus is just irritated to no end the same way that you are. But he promises someday, someday it will all come to an end and it'll all be over. In fact, that's kind of our hope. That's what keeps us going, right? That's what keeps us going. That we know that death will not have the final word. But Jesus will. And he will handle it and he will take care of it. So the, the, the last thing, the last perspective that we get uh, on death and resurrection from Jesus is, um, uh, is, is, is obviously this, per, this promise that, that he will take care of it, that he has taken care of it, that death will not have the final say. But there's also this, this powerful word called hope. And what hope is, is hope is kind of, hope, hope is strength for right now. Because we still live in this temporary, this temporary time before Jesus returns. And um, we have an eternal mindset. We're, we're setting our sights on when Jesus comes. And, and we, we want that to happen. And, and hope is what helps us to persevere. Because I know this is not the be-all, end-all. I know that there is more to come. So hope is a very powerful thing. Listen to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 13. Again, uh, Paul is speaking to a group of Christians who are actually uh, curious about death and wondering about the second coming of Jesus. And he says this to them. He says, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Again, he uses the idea of sleep. We don't want you to be confused about those who sleep in death, and we don't want you to grieve like those who have no hope. You know what Christians do? We don't dismiss the pain of death. We don't dismiss the grief of death, but we, we hope in grief. We have a profound sense of hope even in the midst of our grieving, and we hang on to that. 
It's what buoys us up. It's what strengthens us. It's what, it's what lifts us when we're down. It helps us to make a little bit of sense of the nonsense that goes on in this world in which we live. All right. Let me wrap up with this. Um, again, don't forget, death is asleep. Two resurrections, two deaths. You don't want to be a part of the second act. You want to be a part of the first act. Those who are faithful, those who have adopted Jesus' perspective and understanding about death and resurrection, place their faith in him, believe in him, will be a part of life eternal. But until then, we hope. And hope gives us endurance. So I was with some friends on Thursday. Um, I was with some friends, and my friends are very um, health conscious and very active. He's a physician, she's a physical therapist. They're very active and healthy, almost annoyingly beautiful and healthy and trim and all that, all right? And they think I'm kind of healthy and fit and all that. I got them fooled thoroughly, right? So they're like, hey, you coming to town? Why don't we go work out at this gym? It's a new gym. It's got, it's got new stuff that you'll just love. And I'm thinking to myself, whatever, all right? So they take me to this gym. It's called the Legree Gym. And they have these machines in the Legree Gym that are called Mega Formers. Anybody done the Mega Former workouts before? Y'all are unhealthy. All right. So, so Mega Former, you go into the gym, there's these big, and they're, they're black and long. They almost look like a rowing machine, but they're wider. And there's a big part here, and then there's what they call the platform over here, and there are various monkey bar looking things over here, and straps and all kinds of things. It actually looks like a medieval torture kind of machine, right? So it's a 45-minute workout, and I'm totally new, never done this before in my life. I get up on the mega former, and oh, part, yeah, part of the platform, there's a platform, and then there's this other bigger part that's a bigger platform, but the bigger platform slides. It's very dangerous. Um, and so you get on there, you do all these, you do all these exercises and, and everything, and it's designed to strengthen your core. So it's all this course. It's not like really high impact stuff, but it's, everything you do on there is designed to strengthen your core. And so after 10 minutes, I was pretty much dying. Yes. And one of the worst, one of the worst things, one of the worst exercises is you got the platform that slides and you got one that doesn't slide. It's stationary. But you get on there and the, the, the crazy uh, coach or teacher tells you to slide the slide out. And you got to like hold it in a, in a, you know, in one of these squat kind of thingies. Y'all done the squats before? Well, try to have half of your squat sliding out, right? It does not feel good. He's like, hold it. You can do it. You can hold it for 30 seconds. I'm like, no, I cannot. <laughs> Get me off of the platform. The megaformer is going to kill me. And after 45 minutes, that felt like two hours. She said, this is it, we're done, it's all over. You can now step down from the megaformer, from the platform. And I said, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> so this life, we stand up on the platform of this earth. We stand on the megaformer. And all the trials and all the struggles and all the pain 
and all the death that we deal with and encounter, it does shape us. It does form, or you are, form us. You are so different from when you, before the loss that you suffered. You are different from, from before the grief that you've had to walk through. It's shaped you. It's formed you. And hopefully, it's formed you into someone who is far more hopeful. That you, that you believe deeper in the promises of Jesus about death and resurrection. And the 45 minutes are almost up, people. And when the 45 minutes are up, when Jesus comes, you get to get off the platform. And we get to leave this place. We get to experience the blessings of eternity with a God who is the resurrection and the life. Lord Jesus, thank you for today. Bless these good people. We look forward to your return. And you will finally put it into death. You will usher us into your glorious resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen.